This morning, we're starting a brand new series of messages entitled Letters from Jesus. And as I mentioned in the intro video, we're, we're going to be looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. We're not doing a study on Revelation. We're not talking about prophecy. But in the very beginning of the book of Revelation, Jesus tells the, the Apostle John to write down these seven letters to seven churches with messages that he had for them. And as we read those letters, there were very specific messages for the churches in those cities, but there are also some very powerful things for us in our lives today and, and for us as a church. And so we're going to be looking at those seven churches and what Jesus said to those seven churches, because I know that it's going to speak to you. I know it's already speaking to me. And uh, it, it, I had actually planned on doing a different series to start off the new year, but but uh, during this past week, the Lord really, really kind of directed me in a different direction. And so this is what we're doing. We're going to start the year up. Maybe later, the Lord will let me preach the other message, a series of messages I was going to preach. But, but we're going to look, start this one today, Letters from Jesus. And in the book of Revelation, as I said, there are, there's a series of letters to seven churches. They're very short little snippets uh, uh, to other churches that are that have tried to do what we're trying to do because we're not the first to pursue uh, living the way of Jesus. We're, what we're pursuing is New Testament Christianity. We weren't the first to say, hey, let's we ought to do this together. We're not the first to say, let's try to do this and try to be this. This is just biblical Christianity. And so maybe by looking at other churches who tried to do this and tried to do what we're doing and either succeeded or failed, Maybe by looking at other places that have tried to do what we're trying to do now and by paying attention to them, we can maybe see some of the bumps in the road ahead for us. Maybe we can see a little bit into the future and see some of the dangers that may await us. And the first church that we're going to talk about today, the first church that was a letter was written to in the book of Revelation is the church in the city of Ephesus. So we're going to be looking at that church and I'm not going to be able today. I'm not going to be able to give you a lot of background information about the church in Ephesus because I have so much to talk about in this particular church. But I'm just going to do my best to try to fill in the gaps as we go along. But in Revelation chapter two, verse one, this is what it says. And Jesus is speaking to John as he's writing these things down. And he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So this is Jesus speaking. And here's what he just said. In his right hand, he holds seven stars and, and those are the seven angels. Now, that's a little confusing for us because the word translated angel literally means messenger. And it's used oftentimes in the New Testament to, Testament to refer to human messengers. So Jesus is talking about the, the pastors of these churches. He's a message. He said, I want you to write a letter to this church addressed to the pastor. And this is what he said there. And so Jesus is walking through the seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches. Verse two, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, here's the thing. If we didn't know the rest of the text, if we just stopped reading right there at that point in time, uh, this sounds like a pretty amazing church, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like the kind of a church that we would want to attend, right? I, I know uh, I, that's what I would, I would want to go to a church like this. It sounds like a church that's really getting it done. It, this is what it, it said about, Jesus said about this church, that no matter the outside the pressure of the culture on them. He said that they had remained steadfast and had not grown weary in giving glory to God's name. Not, not only do they not crumple under pressure and stress from the outside, but it also seems that they are growing in their cognitive knowledge of who God is and how he works. And I say that because he says that they can tell when someone is teaching things that are false because the scripture just said that these men had come among them and said, hey, we are apostles, we have this authority and this and this and this and that. And, and they said in response, no, 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 no. That's not how God works. That's not how Jesus works. That's not what the Bible says. And they apparently have grown cognitively in their understanding of who God is and how he works. 
So the Bible also says not only are they steadfast against the flow of culture, not only do they have quite a discipleship program that embeds them into what truth is, but it says also says something pretty phenomenal about them. It says they can recognize evil and they do not tolerate it. So, so not only is this a place that seems to have this pretty great discipleship program where people are getting grounded in the truth, which helps them recognize error and false teaching. Not only is this a place that seems to go against the culture and stand strong and does well, and but it's also a place that can spot evil and they don't tolerate it. When they see dark things, when they see bad things, when they see sinful things, they don't just pretend it's not there. They, they address it. Sounds like a pretty great place, doesn't it? It sounds like a place I'd like to be. It sounds like a place, uh, like a great place. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus says, when I, when I look at you, I see that you persevere against culture, which is great. You recognize right and wrong, which is great. You don't tolerate evil, which is great. You've grown in cognitive knowledge of how I operate and who I am, which is great. But Jesus says, but I have this one thing against you. Verse four. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So don't miss the message here because it's easy to focus in on this and miss everything that has just been said. What the message here is that you can do all of these the things that you're supposed to be doing. And you can imitate this church at Ephesus in their ability to see evil and not tolerate it and, and growing in your knowledge of, of, of God and how he works. And you can have all these good things going on and still lose the whole point of it. That's a very terrifying idea. We can have a great discipleship program. We can know right from wrong. We cannot tolerate it when people knowingly sin or refuse to repent and still miss the point of it all. If we're not careful, we'll keep doing the right things, but we'll forsake our first love. That's a pretty terrifying idea, isn't it? Now, historically, as a preacher, I'm supposed to tell you that, that that first love is Jesus, which is correct. That's right. So And so I'm supposed to say, so get out there and love Jesus more like you did back in the day. And, and then we all leave and we hear that and we go, yeah, well, let's love Jesus more. And then we leave this place and we have no clue what that means. And we have no idea what that looks like. Isn't that right? That's what we do. We love bumper sticker theology, don't we? We really do. We love... Uh, pithy sayings, you know, the bread of life never grows stale. Well, great. What does that mean? What are you talking about there? Uh, uh, What do I do with this truth? What does it mean for me? How does it work into real life? And we don't often ask those questions. And so we hear that we must love Jesus more. And so what we do is we just, we go home and we grab our copy of my utmost for his highest. And we start reading that and we put on a Chris Tomlin, you know, album or something, or if you're old, really old, you know, Sandy Patty, you put her on and you start, you start jamming out. I had Phil Driscoll going this morning as I was getting ready, you know, had a little, I exalted with Phil Driscoll going. We do those things and, and, and we do whatever we can to get back to the good old days. But it's just really this really ambiguous idea. But the text here in Revelation is not going to let us get by with that. Jesus is going to be extremely detailed. He's not just going to say you've left your first love, but he's going to talk about exactly what he means by that and what he wants us to do to correct it. He's not going to leave us hanging in in, in this ambiguity. He's going to be very specific. Look at verse 5. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus says, unless you go back to what you did at first, I'm going to take the lampstand from you. What is the lampstand? That's the church. So here's what he just said. He says, if you don't repent and get back to what you were doing at first, then you may still function as a group of people, but you will not be the light in the darkness. So here's the million dollar question. What were they doing at first? He said, go back and do what you did at first. That's the question. What were they doing at first? What deeds was he talking about? 
Well, to learn that, we have to go back to the book of Acts. We first learned about the church of Ephesus in the book of Acts. So you can flip back there to Acts chapter 19. Uh, uh, Paul came to the city of Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey. And then he returned uh, for an extended stay, excuse me, on his third missionary journey. Now, Ephesus was this was this gigantic, massive, sprawling metropolis. It was huge and it was crazy pagan. It was the home of the temple of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of the region and the, and the temple itself for Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In order to worship Artemis, followers would, would go to this temple and they would basically have sex with a temple prostitute, whether male or female. Ephesus was just this very dark, very pagan city that the apostle Paul loved. And we know that he loved it there because he spent three years there longer than we, than, than we know of that he spent anywhere else. So Paul shows up and he begins to preach the gospel and all these miracles are, start happening. Like that's there where, you know, his handkerchief and his apron because he would work on the side. He'd work during the day to support his ministry and he'd have this apron on his handkerchief to wipe his sweat and that sort of thing. And once he removes them from himself, they, that people grab those and they toss those on the sick people and instantly the sick people are healed. And so these miracles are happening and he's teaching the way of Jesus and all these people are getting saved and they're not worshiping the, uh, Artemis anymore. And it's in Ephesus. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible uh, take place in Acts chapter 19. The story is when these seven men see Paul cast out a demon in the name of Jesus. And so they decide they're going to try it, which is just brilliant, you know. And so they walk up to this demon possessed man and they say, in the name of Jesus, whom the apostle, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And this man, this demon speaks and he says, I know Jesus and, and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? <laughs> Which I find scripture funny a lot of times. This one really cracks me up. I just, I just picture this guy, who are you? And then the Bible says that this dude beats all seven of them naked. That's literally, that's what the Bible says. It says they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And one of the reasons I love this story is because growing up every, you know, in high school when there was a fight that would break out, you'd hear different people saying oh, who won. There was always a debate over who won and who lost. But here's what I've come to the conclusion that if you came into the fight with your drawers on and you left it without your drawers, you lost. You know, that's pretty much there's no, there's no, well, he got a good lick in there. No, you, if you went with pants and you left without pants, you lost the fight. All right. So anyway, uh, anyway, but it's, it, it, that's neither here nor there. But right after that story in Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 20, we find the only specific deed recorded in scripture that the church in Ephesus did. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in Revelation, Jesus says, get back to what you did at first. And there's only one recorded act, one recorded deed performed by the church at Ephesus in Scripture. So here it is, Acts 19, verses 18 through 20. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way... The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Okay, so in Ephesus, in this, in this very dark, very pagan city, what's happening is these people are coming out of this pagan ritualistic culture where there's everything from rampant prostitution to bestiality to, to you name it, to the witchcraft and all of these things. And they're coming out of all of this and they're confessing and they're repenting of the dark things in which they've been involved. The picture we get here is of a church in, in Ephesus that, that in the beginning, it, the picture we get is that of, uh, the, uh, of a church, a group of people that's really gritty and really honest, and they've come together and they've said, I've been a part of some wicked things. Jesus, help me. You have this raw, very raw group of people that are coming together and saying, I've cheated on my wife. 
Jesus, help me. I've cheated on my husband. Jesus, help me. I've betrayed my kids. Jesus, help me. I've been a part of very dark and wicked things. Jesus, help me. Set me free. It was gritty and it was honest and it was pretty powerful. But within 40 years, because that's within the time frame when this letter in the book of Revelation was written, within 40 years, however, this gritty honesty, this untamed desire to be clean before Jesus becomes civilized and pretty. Somehow they got pretty. Somehow in 40 years they went from we stink and need Jesus and we've jacked up our lives and need help to, hey, we're pretty cool, we're good, we're doing good, but that ain't right over there. And that's, that's what's happened in this place. And that's, that's, that's what's terrifying. That we can do all these external things right and, and, still not, and not still have our first love and still miss the point. So what does that mean for us? I want you to turn to Numbers 5. Numbers 5, verse 5 and 6. This is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty. So here's what you have to see here this morning, because this has huge implications for us. The Bible in this verse just said that when I sin against you or you sin against me, that there is a third party involved in the conflict. Who is that? God. You always, always guess God or Jesus when you're in church. If you're not sure, that's your first guess, no matter what it is. If somebody, you know, it's like this, I've told this story about the little boy in Sunday school and that the teacher got up there and he's, and she said, okay, class, what's fur, furry has a, what's, and has a long tail and hides nuts for the winter. And a little boy spoke up and said, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus, you know, so always guess Jesus first. So, so whenever I sin against you or you sin against me, there's a third party involved in that conflict, and that is God himself. That it's not just me sinning against you or you sinning against me. It's us sinning against him. How I relate to you reveals my relationship with the God who made us both. I think that's a powerful statement. How I relate to you reveals my relationship with the God that made us both. And by the way, that is true whether you're a Christian or not. How I treat you, whether you're saved or unsaved, reveals a lot about my relationship with the God who made you. My relationship with God is inseparably linked to my relationships with those around me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, this is how John put it. He said, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You see, we are intertwined. We're intermingled. You can't separate us out. I mean, how many of you ever heard somebody say something like this? Or maybe you even said it yourself. Well, this is just my junk, uh, my sin. This is my sin. I'm not hurting anybody else. You ever heard anybody say something like that? You know, maybe it's porn, maybe it's anger, maybe it's drugs and alcohol, but you have this thing in you and you think it's just your problem. You, if you have that junk inside of you, if you have that dark thing inside of you, if you have sin inside of you that you're not dealing with, then the truth is you're not becoming all that God created, created you to be. You're, another way to say that is you are not becoming fully you. So follow me here on this. Because we are the body of Christ, and the Bible says that we're held together by what every joint supplies, because uh, you are not being fully you. Here's the, what the implication is for us as a church. We cannot be fully we if you are not being fully you. So if you are living with sin in your life, if you're not dealing with that, if you've got that thing hidden inside and you're walking through in your life and you're wearing the mask and pretending it doesn't exist and you're not becoming everything God wants you to be, then you're not just hurting your life, but you're hurting the entire church because we can't be everything we God wants us to be corporately if you're not becoming what God wants you to be personally. So you're, you're, if you're not fully you, we can't be fully we so who are you hurting? You're hurting all of us. 
You see, God's given you this creativity and vitality. And instead of using it for the reason it was given to you, you use it to hide. And that is exhausting. God tells us how to handle it when those dark things are inside of us. In Numbers chapter 5, he says this, Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done, add a fifth of the value to it and give it to all, uh, give it all to the person who uh, they have wronged. So if we have those dark secrets, secrets, we're walking in that darkness, the Bible says, don't hide it. Don't hide it. You need to confess it and make it right. And I don't know, I read that. Isn't that horrible? Isn't that, isn't that frightening to, to us? I mean, it's, it doesn't say, well, I'll just give you a year to work through this. And, or, or why don't you just try to secretly, secretly make things right? Both of those are much more attractive to most of us as human beings. But the Bible says, confess it with your mouth and make things right. If you've stolen, repay. If you've, if you've lied, give the truth. Confess it. But that, that's just not us. That's not what we want to do. We like to stuff it down in, deep down inside of us so that no one can see it. And, and maybe even we can't see it ourselves. See, I think there's a reason why there is no place that we go anymore without a gadget with us, our phone. I mean, have you ever taken time to, when you sit down at a restaurant, to look around and see how many people are on their phones while they're sitting there having dinner with, with family, with friends? I mean, it's almost, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. We constantly have that. And even if we're not with other people, we're always on our phone. Uh, I, I'm the same way. I'm, I'm just here to tell you that uh, I relate with you in this, that that I'll be sitting there and I just have this urge to get to pick up my phone. Let's see what's happening on Facebook. Let's let's see what's going on in the news. Let's I gotta gotta get on my phone and start doing these things. And I I think there's a reason why we we're constantly on that. We're constantly checking. We're che- constantly looking at our phone and looking at something or dealing with things. We're listening to music. We're we're listening to a podcast. Whatever it is. Uh, 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 I mean, it, we do that. And I think one of the reasons we do that and we're so busy and we watch so much TV, we have so many hobbies, is because when things get quiet, then we get a glimpse of who we really are and most of us don't like what we see. It's easier to ignore and easier to hide if I keep the noise going. We don't want to think, we don't want to see who we are. And I want you to see something. Go to Psalm 32. Because we need to understand the power of what he's telling us to do here. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now the word blessed is, is, is the word fortunate or happy. So the Bible is saying fortunate, happy, Blessed is the man who has come clean about all the dirt in his life and has found that forgiveness from God. Fortunate, blessed, happy is the man who does not wear the mask, who does not pretend, who does not play the game, and in whose soul there is no lie. Happy is the man, fortunate is the man, blessed is the man who has said, you know, I really stink at life. I really mess things up here. Fortunate is the man who comes clean. And David, the psalmist, the one writing this, knows this very well because he has come clean in his lifetime. For instance, in Psalm 40, this is not on the PowerPoint, but in Psalm 40, he writes a song that they would sing in the temple. And these are the words of the psalm that he writes. He says, my sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. I mean, what a chipper little ditty to sing on a Sunday morning, right? You know, let's all sing together. You know, my sins have overtaken me. You know, I mean, just, that's just a, but, but, but why is this man who comes clean fortunate? I mean, you may be thinking fortunate, blessed, happy is the man who comes clean, who doesn't wear the mask. How is that even possible? But, but watch this. This is pretty big. Look at verse three of Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. 
Secrets are exhausting, aren't they? It, it, it takes a phenomenal amount of energy to hide inside of oneself. It's exhausting. More importantly, here's what I need you to know and what I need you to hear. Why is the man fortunate? Why is the man blessed? Why is the man happy? Well, God has given us each, uh, each one of us, He's given us vitality, and He's given us creativity, and He's given us energy. And when we hide inside of ourselves, when we're not honest, when we don't come clean about our junk, but we hide it and pretend that it's not there, then our creativity and our vitality and our energy is diverted into hiding so that we're half the people that God created us to be. We're half the fathers, husbands, wives, parents, uh, workers, and on and on that, God, on that God created us to be. You, you take the energy that God has given you for example, to, to create art to, and write songs and to be a, be a lawyer or, or to be a construction foreman or to, or to be a welder, or to be a daddy or to be a mommy or to be a husband, to be a wife, whatever it is. And you take all of that vitality that was given you to by God to swim in the deep ocean of life and you dam it up and you use it to hide, to hide. And that's why some of us are exhausted this morning. We are just exhausted because the vitality, energy, and creativity that Jesus has given you to live very deeply are spent in the wrong places hiding. They're spent trying to maintain a mask, to make yourself look good instead of dealing with what needs to be dealt with. That's not why Jesus came. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Why does Jesus want us to confess these things? Sometimes I think the message... Uh, has been hijacked, that, that somehow Jesus wants us to be honest and say, this is who I am, and, and this is where I stink, and this is where I'm broken, so that other people can judge us. But that's not why Jesus came at all. Jesus said, I want you to confess. I want you to get this junk out in the open. I want you to be honest for a reason, and I want you to see the reason why he came. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So let's define freedom because I think we need to understand what that is. Freedom is a soul or a life that's unchained. The, the, the reason you have to get this out of you and quit pretending that, that it's not there is because the amount of freedom you get to walk in is inseparably, inseparably linked to this idea. And that is the more you hide, the less freedom you have in your soul. The more you hide, the less freedom you experience in your walk with God. The less freedom you have in your relationships with the, with the other people in the body of Christ. When Jesus says to confess, he's not trying to take your life. A lot of us, we, we look at it, we hear confess. I don't want to do that. I don't want to tell anybody. I don't want to be honest with anybody about what I'm dealing with, about the places where I'm broken. We, and we, we, it's just horrifying to us. But when Jesus says to confess, he isn't trying to take your life, but he's trying to get you to life. He's trying to get you to the place of freedom. And yes, I will be the first to tell you, yes, there may be some who will look at you and they will scoff and they will judge you. But let me tell you something. Those people don't know God. Those people are not walking with Christ. Because if they're walking with Christ, they're going to understand that they have received grace for sins that are just as bad or even worse than anything that I can confess to them. He's not trying to ruin your life. He's trying to make your life full. He's trying to bring you into freedom. He's trying to bring you into life. You know, the deeds that we get caught up in and try to hide aren't new. You, you haven't stepped in a pile that nobody else has ever stepped in before. When you sin, you have not discovered anything new. You know, the, the devil likes to isolate us. He likes to lie to us and he say, oh, this thing you've got, you're dealing with, this, it's just so bad. There's nobody, nobody's done anything like this. You can't confess this because, because nobody's going to get this. Nobody, you are so bad, you're off. No, it's not true. No, every, every temptation is common to man. Everybody has dealt with. You haven't discovered anything new. There's no sin out there that's new that you suddenly, suddenly have discovered. 
It's it, it, but because humanity, we tend to fall in the same holes over and over and over again. Galatians 5.19, Paul says that the acts of the flesh are obvious. And that's Paul's way of saying, hey, listen, we keep falling into the same holes over and over again. So here's what I want to do. I want to try to do this very quickly and then we're going to close out today. Uh, maybe this might be a little painful, painful for us as we look at this, but that's, I think that's a good thing. I don't, I don't think we're always supposed to leave here chipper. And I think one of the reasons God led me into this series is because as we're fasting and praying, this is the time when he's trying to till up the soil of our hearts and he's trying to deal with us on deeper levels and deeper things than what we, what we've allowed him to do before. And I think that's why he's led us into this. And so, uh, these are the holes that men and women fall into. These are the traps that rob us of our energy and rob us of our life. And as we read this list, Maybe we have some confessing that we need to do today. Maybe we need to get honest about some things. So look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So let, let's just real briefly look at these. Sexual immorality, impurity, and, and debauchery. Sexual immorality and impurity in this text is just simply this. Having sex with someone who is not your wife or not your husband. Why, why is that a sin? And I ask that question because we live, I don't know if you realize this, but we live in a generation where there is a lot of young people that are asking that question. They're saying, I don't get it. Why is this a sin? Why is it wrong if you love somebody? Why can't you just move in with them and shack up? Why do you have to worry about marriage? Why does this matter? Here's the, here's the thing. When you have sex with, sex with someone outside the blood covenant of marriage, you are taking parts of them, but not all of them. And God would call you a thief. Ladies, let me just unpack this for you as best as I can. Is, is this what you're really after? Someone who likes your body, but doesn't care about your soul. Is that what you were dreaming of when you were a little girl with a play dress spinning around in front of the mirror? I can't wait for some guy to love my body, but hate my soul. Or how about this? In adultery, how free do you feel? And some say, well, I, I'm not an adulterer, but what about what Jesus said? He said, anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with, that, with her in his, in his heart. What, what does that say about us? What does that say about pornography? Do you feel free within that? Do, with, with all the running around and the guilt and the hiding, how free do you feel? That, that's not freedom, that's bondage. Then he, he mentions this word debauchery. Debauchery, it's a very interesting word. It's probably one, you know, it's one we don't use in our culture. You probably haven't heard it used in, in the past week. You know, you, you just, you probably won't hear somebody say, man, that guy's such a debaucher. You know, you're just not going to hear that. I, 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 we just don't use the word. It's kind of an old word, which means excessive indulgence in something or to have no control over something. So let me define it like this. Debauchery is that thing in your life. Maybe it's porn. Maybe it's sexual immorality. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. But it's that thing in your life that when you're away from it, you can see what it's doing to your life. But then when you get near it, it owns you. You see what I'm saying? Hear what I'm saying? And we rationalize around all our defense mechanisms just to get there. It's just very dark. It's dark. Idolatry and witchcraft. Idolatry and witchcraft are very closely related. And, and, and they're both an attempt to use natural action designed to manipulate supernatural forces in order to get a specific response. So you look at idolatry. Idolatry is anything you place before God. Anything you place, it, it can be anything. It can be sports, it can be food, some luxury that you think you just can't live without. Idolatry is when the stuff that you own starts to own you. Let me put it this way. We often, you know, when we go to God and we say, God, here's my life. Here it is. Everything I have, I've got, I'm going to give you everything. You do whatever you want to do in my life, except don't touch this. 
You've just given birth to an idol. And that and this could be anything. It could be, it could be something sinful, but it could also be something wonderful. If you could say, you could say, God, do anything you want in my life, but just don't touch my kids. You just give them birth to an idol. Witchcraft, closely related, is trying to use your own resources in an attempt to manipulate God into doing what you want Him to do. This is why I believe that that the name it and claim it theology is more closely related to witchcraft than it is Christianity because using your words to try to force God into giving what you want and giving you a specific outcome, that's within the spirit of witchcraft. And it's also within the spirit of witchcraft to try to earn something from God because of your actions. For example, when you say to God, God, I have been faithful, so now you have to do this. That's that's closer to witchcraft than anything else because you're trying to manipulate God into an outcome that you want. Then he talks about hatred and discord. How many of you know the world is a trashy place, isn't it? There is some hard junk out there. I don't know what you've seen. I don't know what's been done to you. Some of us have come from really jacked up homes and 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 we have seen some really dark things happen. Some of you have seen churches do things and people in churches do things that are wicked, that are just not right. But I want you to look at me. I want you to hear me on this. The the thing about holding on to hate for whatever reason, no matter what has been done to you, the thing about holding on to hate is that you're not going to get back at the people who hurt you by holding on to hate. You're just going to burn yourself up. The victim of your hate is going to be you. Hear me. I I don't know what you've seen. I don't know what dark thing has happened and what's been done to you. But you're going to have to get to the place where, and this is, I'm not saying this is easy, and I'm not saying this is fast, but you're going to have to learn with the help of the Lord to let it go and put it in the hands of God and say, God, judgment is in your hands for this person. It's not mine anymore, or it'll burn you up. If if you don't let it go, now hear me on this. If you don't let it go, you're going to become the very thing you hate. Because we tend to become like those things upon which we focus. That's why the Bible says we should be beholding Jesus. Because at beholding Him, we are transformed. And, and, you know, I mean, think about it like this. Don't you think that the 10-year-old boy who watches his dad beat his mom hates it? And then he says to himself, I, I will never be like that. That'll never be me. I will never do that. Only, and he focuses on his hatred on his dad only to grow up. And what does he do? He ends up beating his wife. We, we, we can let all the junk that we've seen and all the hurt that's in our lives go and start to heal. As I said, I'm not saying that's easy. I, I'm not saying that's clean. I'm not saying there's a shortcut. I'm not sure, saying that's a fast process. But I am saying you have a choice here today, same as me. You can choose to say, today, God, I'm going to begin to let this go. Jealousy, he mentions that. Jealousy is, is not just... I want what they have. Jealousy is also, I won't celebrate when good things happen to you. You know, I've always been amazed. It's, it's just, it's amazing to me how often in the church that as Christians, when something bad happens, we really rally around and we, we surround that person. But, but, but then when something really good, a huge blessings hap, hap, blessing happens in somebody's life, how often we, we don't want to rejoice with that person. The Bible says to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And sometimes jealousy gets a hold of us. And and if something good happens to them, jealousy begins to say, well, the only reason they got that is because they brown nose. It's only reason that good happened to them is because they, 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 they did this or they're the pet or whatever. You know, jealousy says they'll get theirs and what goes around comes around. Well, I can say, all I can say is I hope not, not for me, because why do I want what goes around comes around for other people when I don't want it for me? Jealousy is, is not just I want that, but jealousy is I won't celebrate that good thing that happened to you. And I'm wondering if maybe some of us at times haven't fallen into that hole of jealousy. 
Fits of rage is an interesting one. Do you think maybe there's some, something deeper going on here? How many of you have ever, ever found yourself being really short with your kid, really angry with your child? Your, your kid does some, some little thing, but for whatever reason, that's the biggest thing in the world to you at that moment, right? It's just this itty bitty thing, but it's like they punched you in the soul or something, you know? So, so there's this outburst. You know, don't do that. What's your run? Why are you always unable to do this thing? Well, here's a better one. And, and I, I think you, you might laugh at this because maybe you'll see yourself in this. How about in traffic? When that guy pulls out in front of us and all of a sudden it is completely personal. You know what I'm talking about? Am I, am I the only one in here? You know, it's like... They did that on purpose. Why do they hate me? You know, it's like all of a sudden, you know, that guy has attacked everything that is good and right in the world and he must be destroyed. You know, or at least get in bad and evil glare from me or something. It's got to get something. Let me ask you something. You think that maybe that's just revealing something else deep and down inside of us? I, I don't know if you've traveled much outside of this country, but most places don't drive like we do. And I don't mean that that we're bad drivers. I mean, if you go to third world countries, I've come to the conclusion many of those countries do not have traffic laws. They have traffic suggestions. You know, it's just crazy. People, you know, pull up to a red light and they'll just slow down a little bit and look and honk and go on through. And people are just I remember being driving in. the. I wasn't driving. I was on a bus in Manila. And as, as, uh, and you get there and, and whoever gets their nose in first gets to go first. And, and I mean, it's crazy and people are cutting each other off and all these crazy things going on. But you know, one of the things, one of the things they don't have is they don't have road rage. So maybe it's something going on inside of us. Maybe it's not really the traffic. Maybe it's not really that guy cutting me off. Many people have unresolved issues in them and they just keep burrowing deeper and deeper inside, causing these fits of rage. They don't even know why they act the way they do. They just do it. Could it be that in the deepest parts of our heart, we don't like who we are and we, we say, well, I'm just not good enough. The problem with that sentence is that it starts with the word I. Therefore, it's idolatry because I've taken the throne instead of Jesus being good enough for me. I, I say, I'm not good enough. And you see, when the problem with, with, with this anger is inside that maybe there's something going on inside of us as we say, well, they made me mad. They made me angry. No, nobody can make you anything. What happens is, if I had a cup up here, a cup of water, and I started shaking it, and if I asked you, okay, why did that water come out of that cup? Most of you would say, well, because you're shaking it. It's wrong. The reason the water came out of this cup is because it was in there in the first place. If there's no water in the cup, I can shake it all day long. It's not coming out. And when life begins to shake me, whether it's something as simple as somebody pulling out in front of me or somebody doing something absolutely abominable to me or my family. When life begins to shake me, if that's what comes out, all that is showing me is that's that, that was what was in there. So maybe there's something there we need to deal with. He talks about selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. You know, when you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break up the party, I'm going to form teams, it's, I'm going to keep score, it's us against them, that's selfish ambition. And I want you to understand, ambition is not the problem. Ambition is not a sin. Selfish ambition is the problem. Selfish ambition causes all those other things listed, dissensions and factions and envy. Then he mentions drunkenness and orgies, and this is... This is just, you know, the numbing of your soul to the reality of life, whether it's through alcohol or drugs or sex. This is any aspect of life that you wire into your life that helps you escape from what you really are. So these are the holes that we fall into. And we, church, must be careful 
that we do not replace honesty with doing church. We must be careful that we don't become like the church at Ephesus where we move away from this gritty honesty of saying, this is who I am. This is what's going on in my life. I want to be honest about it because I want to find freedom in it to playing the game and doing church and wearing masks. We've got, we've got to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't sacrifice honest living for a good appearance. And we have this chance today to accept this great invitation from Jesus that says, blessed, happy, fortunate is the man who is willing to say, I'm not doing well. This is one of the reasons why our connect groups are important, why, why it's important in our, in our Sunday school classes to, to have time to be open and honest with one another because it's those, in those settings that we can be honest and, and we, we can form relationships that are deep enough with people where we can say, listen, I need to, you to pray for me. This is what I'm dealing with. This is where I'm hurting. This is where I'm angry. I feel this inside of me. This has happened and it's shown me there's something going on and, and I need you to pray with me. And we have, this, we have this chance today to finally walk in some freedom. We have this chance to finally come clean about who we are. We, have the, we, we honestly have a chance to get this great picture of Jesus. Because when you dump all of your junk out and there's someone there that you're talking to who is gracious and loving and full of the Spirit and then they look at you and say, is that it? And you say, well, no, there's this too. And then they, oh, okay, is that it? Yes, that's it. And then when that person just grabs you and they hug you and you cry together and you ask Jesus to help you and to sustain you and you find grace and you find prayer and you find love and you find support, all of a sudden you, you get this tangible Touchable, seeable Jesus. You find out what He's like because of the body of Christ. That's what He wants for us. So my challenge as we go into this new year is for you to get into a connect group, to dig in deep, to get into that setting and, 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 and realize that, there, you know, that, that that's the situation, that's a place where you can you can begin to be uh, dig in deep enough where you can be honest. You can let people see, and you're going to find you're going to find freedom that you've never known. Would you bow your head? Let's pray together. Father, as we come into your presence today, Lord, I, I know this is this is certainly not a message anybody's going to walk out of here clicking their heels and shouting and saying, "Wow, this is such a great day!" But God, it can be a great day if we'll listen to what you're saying to us. And God, I just pray that if there's anything inside of us, there's something you're wanting to deal with. If we've been playing the part, if we've been wearing the mask and trying to make sure we look good, and yet, God, you've been trying to do something deep inside, I pray, God, that today would be a day that we say no more. I'm not going to play anymore. I want real freedom. I don't want to just pretend. I don't want to pretend that everything is okay. I want everything to actually be right. And God, I pray that if that's what you're doing in us, in any one of us individually, God, that we would, we would go to someone, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a, a trusted friend, or maybe it's in someone in a connect group, but God, that we would find that place where we can, we can just be real. And Lord, as we do that, we discover that it's safe, that you are a safe place, Lord. That we can be honest about where we're broken, where we're struggling with sin. And, and you don't affirm it and say, oh, that's okay, keep doing it. But no, you say, that's all right. Don't sin anymore. I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you strength. I'm going to help you change. And, I'm, and you're not going to live this way anymore. Because now that you've confessed it, the secret has no power. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to have the courage. Lord, we need Holy Spirit, courage to do this. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as we do it to find freedom like we've never known. Freedom to worship you. Freedom to create. Freedom to share Christ. Freedom 
to be who you made us to be. And God, as you help us each to become who you made us to be, then you can help us as a church to become what you created us to be. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around. And, and listen, I, I don't even know what to ask you to do other than just simply say, if you'd say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. Because I know God's dealing with me. He's talking with me. And I just need courage to do what I need to do. If there's anybody, would you slip your hand up? Yes, yes. Yes, they're all over the place. They're all over the place. We're not interested in playing games here. We want to be the people of God. We want to be real. We want to be a light in the darkness. I want to pray for you. And listen, if you need to, I want first of all, these altars are open. If you need to come right now, you can come. You can come, you can kneel, you can stand, you can get on your face, whatever you need to do. Father, you see those that have raised their hands and those that are even coming to this altar, Lord, and we just simply want to come. We want to be real. We want to be honest. We want to confess before you. God, we're, we're, we're tired of wasting our energy in trying to play games and trying to wear the mask. And God, I pray that in this moment, as we, as a church and as individuals, as we make this decision to say, God, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be gritty. I'm going to be honest. I don't care about being pretty. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. All I want is the freedom Christ has for me. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name, that this would be a turning point. And I know, Lord God, that so many of these things, it's not something that happens overnight. The forgiveness is instant, but God, the, that sometimes it takes a while for us to learn how to function outside of these things. And, and so, God, I pray that if, Whatever it is, that you'd begin that work and that you would be faithful to complete it until the day of your appearing. And we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.